This podcast is sponsored by Glory Lost and Found, the book from the publishers of Airline Weekly, which tells the story of how Delta rose from despair to dominance in the post-9-11 era. Glory Lost and Found is now available as an audiobook on Audible and iTunes. It's also on Kindle and in paperback. Hop on Amazon and search Delta Book. Today on the show, let's talk about one of the more interesting airlines in the world. Brazil's Azul was rather ingenious at its inception back in 2008. Utilizing only Embraer e-jets, Azul was able to offer nonstop service between smaller cities where people previously had to connect. This innovation got the ball rolling, and in just a few years, Azul absorbed a competing airline called Trip and was now serving more destinations than any other Brazilian carrier. And all along the way, nobody had to sit in the middle seat. But then things got weird. Yeah, Azul decided to complement those rather small planes with some very large ones, A330s, to fly all the way to Florida. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly. And I'm Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner of Airline Weekly. We'll start the show by checking in on Azul and its ambitious experiment. We'll talk about goals, continued struggles. We'll also talk about a rumor that Delta is interested in WestJet and how Etihad is growing weary in Italy. Plus, Malaysia Airlines has a new CEO and a whole lot more all coming up on the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. We're starting the show with Azul's long-haul ambitions, and now that we're a couple years into this experiment, things are surely clouded by the collapsed Brazilian economy. But at the same time, Azul hasn't retreated on its long-haul service, has it? As it retreated on, on its existing service, although clearly it's retreated on its ambitions at least, uh, you know, some of those wide-body aircraft that were going to be flying to places other uh, than just Fort Lauderdale and Orlando in the United States, places like OJFK, have instead gone over to TAP, Portugal, uh, looking for more productive uses over there. Uh, yeah, you know, it, this, was, this was always a risky strategy to begin with. Um, you know, to, to take an airline that was all short haul, nearly all domestic, flying, as you said, not even regular mainline sized uh, uh, narrow bodies, but those uh, smaller E-Jets, 190s and 195s, and then making the leap to long haul A330s, you know, ordering A350s. Um, so always seemed like perhaps a bit of an imbalance there, not to mention, you know, perhaps even more importantly, just, you know, we've talked about it before, Jason, uh, just a, a, a risky model, this low-cost, long-haul model. Tough even uh, for airlines like, oh, Norwegian, let's say, uh, flying in markets where if it's ever going to work, it's going to work between you know London and the U.S., a dense market where, uh, where people don't need visas in general, where you can rotate the aircraft in a very uh, high-utilization type schedule. Uh, you know, when you're flying between Brazil and the U.S., um, you're flying in a market where people need... Uh, 
visas uh, where Americans who right now might be tempted to go down to Brazil because it, it's just so cheap to be there because of you know, the currency situation, uh, a big hassle for them to go. I mean, you literally cannot stimulate last minute demand. There's nobody who can say, hey, you know what? Let me hop on Azul this weekend, go down there, see what it's like, because uh, they can't get a visa that quickly with the limited exception of during the Olympics, but that poses all kinds of other challenges. Um, uh, not only that, Jason, but um, you know, and this this is um, getting a little bit into the details of of, of airline scheduling, but it's very important in this market. Uh, just the way the geography works. Um, it's hard to keep the aircraft in the air very many hours per day. Uh, that's because with you know South America obviously being you know more or less south of the U.S., Brazil's a couple time zones over. Um, it, it's it's not like when you fly to Europe or Asia from North America and you have these big time changes. And when you add it all up, basically the airplane is able to be in the air most of the day. Between South America and the U.S., because those flights only work overnight, it's just very hard to get people to take a flight in that market during the day. So people want to take these red-eye flights. Basically, the aircraft gets from Brazil to you know Fort Lauderdale, let's say, early in the morning and has to sit there all day and uh, not go anywhere until late that night. And obviously, low utilization, expensive wide bodies, not exactly compatible with the, uh, uh, with the low-cost model. So for all kinds of reasons, this was risky to start. And then, oh, by the way, the Brazilian economy collapsed and the currency collapsed and the rest of it. Something you mentioned, I think we should expand on. Uh, you mentioned that the Olympics will not will pose all sorts of other problems. <laughs> what were those? What are those problems? Well, for Azul, uh, pose the same problems that the World Cup posed two years ago uh, for Brazil uh, and, and that these events tend to pose in other places, too, by the way, uh, which is that corporate travel uh just kind of falls off a cliff uh you know it, it becomes very difficult to uh to do business during these periods and so um you know so 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 that kind of demand which of course is, is very important tends to be a higher yielding demand uh you know just kind of goes away during that period um also what you tend to get is you know a lot of people come to the country at once and they just kind of stay for a while and then they leave and uh, so at least, you know, for the long haul airlines, yeah, they're busy, you know, bringing everybody there and then bring everybody home. But in the interim and Azul being mostly a domestic airline, not a lot happens. And yeah, of course, there are people in some cases traveling between different venues and Azul can get some of that kind of business. But, you know, by and large. Uh, these events, you know, can perhaps have some have some long term benefit in terms of you know, showing off Brazil to the world if, if things go well. Uh, but in the short term, actually not good for airlines. This highly directional travel, everybody going in one direction to a country, uh, and a couple weeks later, everybody leaving the country in the other direction, and not a lot in between. Not not great for business. In our cover story this week, we discussed the troubles at Virgin Australia and how it made a mistake 10 years ago by buying just a few 777s to serve California. They had too few to reach any economy of scale, and with just five A330s, does Azul face a similar problem? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, think about it, Jason. you got to go out and design a business-class product. Uh, And and the overhead, uh, you know, just sort of the capital cost of designing the product— 
really are kind of the same regardless of how many airplanes you have. Um, but then, you know, if, if you are American Airlines or, or Lufthansa or whoever, uh, you, you get to take that product and go roll it out across a fleet of, of many dozens or, or in some cases hundreds of wide bodies. If you are Azul, you get to put it on five wide bodies. You know, that's all the benefit you get. Uh, the same problem, incidentally, that the Virgin Australia has, which, as you said, we, we, we go through that in our in our cover story this week. So, uh, so yeah, um, you know, and, and look, I mean, they they thought they were going to be doing more, uh, but it was never going to be you know dozens and dozens of planes. Um, so yes, that that among all the other issues, um, that is the problem. Uh, you know, there. There are things that might seem to make sense in a vacuum. Um, you know, it might seem that oh, there's just enough demand to support a you know a small wide body operation, but then if you can't scale it up, uh, then that thing that seems to make a little sense um, just might not make sense anymore. And meanwhile, Azul is increasing the lie flat business class seats from twenty to thirty five on its A three thirties. Going from twenty to thirty five is a pretty big leap. It's not going to be cheap to do this, and money is not exactly growing on trees in Brazil right now. Does this tell us anything about their confidence in long-haul service? Yeah, it's just a way to cut capacity, uh, more, more likely than not. I mean, look, you know, hard to imagine that there's any surge in business class demand that's uh, that's driving this. Uh, you know, by the way, they also have... Oh, about a hundred extra legroom economy seats uh, on on each of these aircraft. I'm talking not about a true premium economy product, but something you know, sort of like an economy plus type, just the you know, extra few inches of legroom. Uh, so these are rather sparsely configured A330s, uh, which is you know not typically the low cost long haul way of doing things. You know, more likely than not, uh, this is just them recognizing. Look, the demand's just not there, uh, and and sort of calculating that the best thing they can do is is just to take capacity out, however they can, by basically de-densifying uh, the aircraft um, and and adding uh, some of these business class seats. And of course, each of those business class seats replaces a few economy seats, and just hoping to push the yields up that way. But uh, I guarantee you, they're essentially spilling some uh, economy passengers forward into business class for for free or, or nearly free in order to to fill the cabin. Could Azul start flying wide bodies to Europe, or does its relationship with TAP negate that? You know, it, it could. You know, it's got the uh, the A350s on order. Uh, now, you know, Azul partly owns TAP, so it's, it's uh, you know, in the end, just a matter of optimizing things for, um, you know, whichever airline it makes the most sense to do that. And, uh, you know, right now the feeling seems to be there that it just makes more sense to have these aircraft in the hands of TAP, that it has more opportunities um, than, than Azul has. Um, so... You know, it seems more likely than not that you know any service between Portugal and Brazil uh, is going to continue to be operated by TAP as as it has long been, uh, and, and not by Azul. But um, you know, there there is that that benefit um, that comes with owning uh, a large piece of TAP that they uh, kind of can move the assets around to where they um, make the most sense within the sort of combined equity empire, if you will. Sooner or later, Brazil's recession will ease, I hope. Um, on the other side of this, who's more likely to be the premier Brazilian carrier, Goal or Azul? Uh, you know, look, uh, Goal 
has the more proven model. Um, you, you know, if you look at goal, um, it looks a lot like, uh, just broadly speaking, at least, you know, Southwest or EasyJet, uh, you know, an airline with the, the somewhat larger narrow bodies, um, the good amount of corporate travel uh, business, you know, as well as you know, leisure and the rest of it. And just kind of the more classic low-cost carrier, um, you know, the the idea of sort of taking smaller aircraft and doing what you explained in, in the open, uh, you know, trying to go into markets where, you know, that maybe couldn't support a larger aircraft. It's one of these things that, you know, that, 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 that can make some sense on paper and can even make sense in reality. Um, I, I don't know that the opportunities there are limitless. You know, you are always trying to sort of thread a needle where you're saying, uh, yeah, let's look for markets where there's uh, a certain amount of demand, but not too much demand, because if there's too much demand, then you know somebody like Gold would be in there. Uh, incidentally, not so different from what uh, JetBlue, also under David Nealman, was thinking when it ordered Ember Air 190s. And JetBlue, for a long time, really struggled to find productive uses for those. That was the same idea there. I mean, a lot of details different, but the idea that, yeah, you know, let's go into markets um that were you know southwest maybe isn't going to go or somebody like that who only has larger aircraft um and uh you know but where this might be the right aircraft for those models and we can introduce low-cost service into those into those markets rather i said models into those markets and it kind of turned out that yeah if if if, if other airlines weren't flying them with low-cost service maybe there was a reason for that and and um and the higher yields that were necessary to compensate for the fact that you were using smaller aircraft because Jason when you use smaller aircraft uh, you know generally higher unit costs even if they're rather new efficient aircraft just not enough seats to spread the cost to get the unit cost very low it 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 it, it just didn't add up to uh, limitless opportunity um so uh you know look i mean there's there's a lot of business to go around in brazil in a normal environment with a healthier economy uh so you know every reason to think that uh that that there's a place in the marketplace for azul but uh if you had to pick the, between the two of them I would I would bet on goal. Uh, and, and, and by the way, Jason, one other fact about Azul. Uh, you, know, you mentioned before they, they actually serve more destinations in Brazil than any, any other airline. They were also, for a while, this of course has changed, for a while, they were the fastest growing airline in the world uh, among airlines of any you know, of any notable size uh, in, in percentage terms. Uh, yeah, they were growing some like 20% a year. You know, even after the the merger between Azul and Trip, so uh, this is an airline that had very grand ambitions, uh, uh, demonstrated in many different ways. Certainly with the A three thirties. Speaking of goals, prospects, they are having trouble with their bondholders. They asked for a debt reduction, and only twenty two percent obliged. Is that disappointing? Well, I, I mean, you'd have to think so. Um, but uh, you know, but on the other hand, if if you look at their shares, uh, there seems to be some some more optimism now. Uh, that they are going to turn the corner. So, um, so what that could mean counterintuitively, and I, obviously it's hard to know exactly what those bondholders are thinking, but counterintuitively, uh, it, it might not mean that they don't have faith in Azul. It might mean that they think, look, or, or, I said Azul in, in goal rather. Um, it might think that precisely the opposite that they think um, goal is going to be okay, and they'd rather just sort of, you know, 
just just bet on on getting uh, on getting everything, you know, rather than rather than doing a doing a deal to hedge their bets. So uh, so sure, I'm sure when when gold went out to all its bondholders, it, it hoped to get more than uh, than you know one in five going along with that. But um, but but in terms of what that means uh, for the airlines prospect, I don't know that that's uh, necessarily a bad thing. Um, it, it, it's an airline that. As I said before, uh, you know, at least in a normal environment, every reason to think that uh, it, it has the right model and can do well, and, and it, ha- it has had good years. But an airline that, despite all that, just just has a terrible balance sheet and and um, uh, and, and, and is basically drowning in debt and interest payments and all that, and, and unfortunately, uh, you know, no matter how you know no matter how much uh, how well it does operationally um you know today in terms of operating profits and all of that when you've just got uh interest payments uh that that wipe everything out and and no prospect of um changing that then you know that that's when your airline gets into trouble but um but uh well we'll we'll see i i uh if i had to guess i would still guess you know that they're gonna they're gonna find a way out um particularly if the worst is over for the economy in Brazil, uh, you know, we see the currency having come back nicely already, um, you know, commodity prices having come back. And that's, you know, that's that's uh, the story for Brazil in terms of its export economy. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe starting to look more likely and not that uh, that they'll be OK one way or the other. Moving north, but staying in the Americas. Could Delta be expanding its empire? We reported in Airline Weekly about a rumor, and I stress this is a rumor, that Delta could be buying a piece of WestJet. What do you know about this? Yeah, and, and we're not sort of a rumor sheet, you know, and so we, we, we uh, mo- almost always just don't even report rumors. We, we reported this one because it, it JetBlue actually, in a, in a regulatory filing opposing the Delta Aeromexico joint venture uh, said that that this possibility was out there. Uh, so the cautionary note there is, you know, obviously JetBlue has has its own interest. Uh, is basically trying to paint Delta as, as becoming too powerful and so forth. But um, uh, yeah, um, look, WestJet has uh, two big partners in the U.S. They are Delta and American. Um, Delta, we know, loves to buy pieces of airlines around the world. I mean, including one we were just talking about a moment ago, Goal, uh, as well as you know, Virgin Atlantic, of course, and and, and others. Um, so, uh, so, so, yeah, you know, you, you could envision them looking at WestJet, whose shares in U.S. dollar terms are are worth nearly half what they were a couple of years ago. Um, uh, or I should say, have fallen in value by nearly half, worth just slightly more than half. Uh, you know, and say, hey, that's that's a good deal. Um, and, and a chance to uh maybe get a leg up over American right now. Both of them are sort of these you know arms length code share partners. Uh, Delta and American, well documented. Uh, you know, uh, they're at war against each other. And uh, you know, if if Delta with the better balance sheet than American feels like it's in a position to do this and to maybe uh, uh, get into a better position with uh, Canada's other airline. And, you know, I mean, the context here is there's Air Canada, they're in the Star Alliance, they're United's partner um, uh, with the right to start a transborder joint venture. They haven't done that yet. Uh, and then there's one other airline and in, 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 in Canada of any significance in terms of corporate travel and 
to U.S. airlines who would like to be that airline's partner. So for, for lots of reasons, you know, uh, ju- you know, just because it's cheap, because it's strategically interesting and the rest of it, uh, you, you could envision WestJet uh, being of interest to, uh, to Delta, um, although, it, as you said, just, just a rumor at this point. You're right. Delta does like to buy a lot of stuff. The other day I was leaving my house and I go out to my detached garage and there's a guy from Delta there. He's got this paper and says Delta's bought 30% of my garage. You know, I like the cash. <laughs> I like the cash infusion, but I can't really open my driver's side door now. Um, so, but I digress. Uh, let me bounce around here. Uh, but staying with airlines, buying airlines theme, we reported in Airline Weekly, Etihad is growing weary of its investment in Alitalia. This was a real stunner. <laughs> um, I think I might uh, detect a little sarcasm there. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and then you've got uh, Qatar out there looking at buying, you know, half of Meridiana. Um, so you could have two Italian airlines that I'm not sure, you know, why anybody would necessarily want to own them, uh, owned by, by, uh, dueling Gulf carriers. Um, yeah, I'll tell you, uh, you know, there was this grand plan to break even within a couple of years and, um, doesn't really appear to be going very well. Um, it's, this is an airline with, with, a, with a very troubled history. Um, you know, an airline that seems to be run uh, for the benefit of 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 its labor unions of of, of Italian politicians and, and so forth. Um, not to say that there aren't and haven't been over the years good people there who know what to do, but just uh, you know, sort of with, without the uh, freedom to do that. And uh, yeah, it, it, this is one that uh, um, you know, if you could look at in terms of sort of within the Etihad family um, of of money losing airlines um you know maybe uh jet airways if anything in india is one who that's perhaps turning the corner yeah the the alitalia is most definitely not um air berlin is most definitely not uh you know and i mean there are others it's just harder to know uh what's going on but i don't think anybody thinks that uh you know air serbia is uh is, is about to take over the world anytime soon. And, and then there's the one, as you mentioned earlier, the subject of our cover story this week, Virgin Australia, another airline that, uh, you know, we'll see, but, um, but, uh, yeah, not, no, no prospects of, um, of producing world beating profits anytime soon. But, uh, anyway, among them all, yeah, hard to imagine Alitalia is going to be the one to break out from the pack. I saw you talking to the mainstream media last week about the USDOT awarding slots to U.S. carriers seeking service to Havana. As a Miami guy, I'm sure this comes with a twinge of emotion for you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, it's all very surreal. I mean, just just sort of, you know, having yeah, grown up with with, uh, you know, with, with all the dynamics in that in that market, uh, the idea of scheduled service to Cuba, you know, obviously all the all the tensions uh, uh in i mean in recent years it's thawed um but still this is this is different um you know I, the first time i was in, in cuba was in uh, uh first and only time was uh, late 1998 and early 1999 and i remember it really striking me how on one hand you know you were geographically so close to the u.s and yet uh in so many senses you were so incredibly far away uh, I mean, even something just as simple as, you know, um, you know, not seeing U.S. brands, you know, not seeing, uh, you know, McDonald's or something, you know, obviously you could fly as far as you possibly could fly in the world to uh, Sydney or, or Singapore or somewhere uh, from South Florida and, and, and see all of that. But you wouldn't see it in Cuba. Um, and so, 
Uh, so yeah, so the, the, it's it's all uh, a, a huge change, um, of course. Uh, and uh, in terms of the awards themselves, um, interesting. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that in the broadest sense there were any big surprises, but I think the the uh, the details were maybe uh, a little bit unexpected. Um, you know, first of all, airlines asked for roughly triple what DOT could actually award, and this was all dictated by the uh, by the high level agreement between the governments earlier this year that there could be 20 round trips between the U.S. and Havana, um, uh, all by U.S. carriers. And you know, they asked for a lot more than that. So um, of those 20 round trips, daily round trips, I should say, 12, uh, almost every day of the week, uh, 12 are between South Florida airports, either Miami and Fort Lauderdale uh, and Havana. Um, now, uh, that's no surprise that that's probably about what I would have guessed. Uh, the thing that's maybe surprising is that of the 12, uh, six each are from Miami and Fort Lauderdale, even though the far larger Cuban American population is in Miami. And indeed DOT said that it took into strong, uh, uh, consideration where the Cuban American population is because it expects a lot of the travel to be family visit traffic, uh, between the country. So, uh, but Fort Lauderdale got just as much as Miami. Fort Lauderdale, of course, uh, an easy enough drive from Miami. But it's also where the low-cost carriers are. And indeed, uh, DOT also said that it wanted to get the LCCs into the game. And so uh, so there you go. Um, you know, Spirit, JetBlue, Southwest, each with a, uh, not just one, but a pair of daily round trips uh, between Fort Lauderdale and, and Cuba's capital. Um, Frontier, actually, with a daily round trip from uh, Miami to there, joining Delta, kind of strange. Miami, Havana, you know, obviously Miami, not a Delta hub. Uh, and American with four daily from Miami. Speaking of which, I guess, you know, just like I said, if anything, maybe Miami might have felt like it underperformed relative to you know, just, just the massive Cuban popular, uh, Cuban-American population there, just having six of the 20 nationwide. Uh, American probably felt the same way. You know, here here it's it's the dominant airline at the, the hub that is by far, uh, you know, the most important to, to the Cuban-American community. And, and American uh, nationally got just five of the 20. There's four from Miami and also uh, one from Charlotte. Uh, Charlotte had to feel good about that, by the way, you know, considering that, um, you know, Chicago uh, got nothing. Um Washington got nothing. Uh, Boston got nothing. West Palm Beach, Jacksonville. There's some other cities that uh, you know hoped to get something. Minneapolis uh, also got nothing. In terms of airlines, Jason, uh, you know the ones that were uh, probably disappointed would have been Sun Country. They were the ones who, who wanted that Minneapolis service. And uh, Silver Airways, which is going to be flying to all kinds of places in Cuba, but none of them Havana. You know, the earlier announcements of the much less competitive secondary markets, they, they, got, uh, they got pretty much everything they wanted there. Uh, they were probably hoping that by uh, showing this willingness to serve some markets that maybe nobody else was willing to serve, that uh, DOT would look kindly upon that and allow them to serve Havana. But DOT uh, seemed to say, look, with, with so few round trips, we're not giving them to a uh, to a SOP three forty turboprop operator who doesn't have nearly as many seats. That that would just be a uh, a waste of that capacity. So uh, Silver and Sun Country sort of the losers in terms of air airlines. Uh, for the record, Eastern and Dynamic wanted service also, but uh, um, but they they uh, never really had a, a clear shot. They're you know, basically not scheduled airlines. 
Malaysia Airlines has a new CEO. This follows the rather surprising resignation of its former CEO. It's surprising because the airline was in the middle of what we think is a successful turnaround plan. Yeah, Christoph Muller and uh, he, he uh, good reputation, seemed to be doing well so far there. Uh, and then, you know, uh, rather suddenly left for uh, ostensibly personal reasons. Eh, you know, there are very various uh, rumors about just him. Uh, not feeling like he had the freedom to do everything he needed to do there, perhaps. But uh, uh, now it falls to Peter Ballou, um, who uh, well, also well regarded, um, and uh, you know to see if if this can continue. I mean, look, there's always going to be an element of, of uh, uh, you know politics and everything involved in, in what happens at that airline. Now, certainly they've they've been allowed they've been allowed to do a lot of things that they couldn't have otherwise done in, in less precarious situations in terms of you know painful route and job cuts um but uh you know it's it's uh that's a part of the world that for many years was a really good place to run an airline um southeast asia broadly speaking uh you know good geography for a lot of markets uh uh and and um airlines that uh that all did you know reasonably well very often um you know seemed to have a lot of margin for error you know even if something went wrong could still sort of uh uh break even or make a few dollars um but then the environment there changed you know you have air asia of course and other low-cost carriers just much tougher competition and then obviously the uh not one but two disasters at malaysia airlines itself so it found itself um uh you know basically insolvent but uh yeah well we'll we'll, we'll see uh you know obviously um, cost cutting and right sizing an airline has um has helped other airlines turn the corner and uh, uh see if they can stay on what what seemed to be already a uh, a, a decent path uh toward perhaps restoring profits all right last item earnings season starts later this week with delta kicking things off on thursday regarding all the airlines anywhere in the world what storyline are you most curious about? Well, uh, you know, these will be, first of all, some of our um, first opportunities to hear about Brexit fallout. Um, uh, you know, and we'll hear about that from airlines everywhere because, uh, uh, sure, of course, IAG, you know, with, with the you know, BA being as exposed as anybody, um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have a lot to say. But, uh, uh, you know, if you're American Airlines or Delta or United or uh you know or any of the japanese carriers or air canada um and so many others um not to mention of course other european carriers uh lufthansa air france klm sas and and then the the low-cost carriers ryanair and so forth uh you know uh there's there's uh all kinds of impact there um and so we'll see um i mean look not in, in reality nothing has uh has has changed yet from a regulatory standpoint or anything like that but um you know there's there's a certain amount of trepidation so um yeah i want to hear about that um and uh you know just just with uh everything else happening around the world we mentioned earlier brazil um you know nobody yet has been willing to call a bottom there, uh, you know, and say, "Hey, you know, we think we've turned the corner." Um, but, uh, but look, things are unlikely to just kind of keep getting worse and worse. At some point, um, things will probably get better. Uh, again, if we sort of look at, at, at the currency, at least, um, uh, and at commodity prices, they're well off their lows. Um, so let's see if uh, 
if if uh, you know any airline CEOs, if Copa Airlines, for example, with a lot of exposure there, uh, American Airlines, I mentioned all kinds of exposure to uh, to Brazil. Um, if 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 they're willing to be a, a little bolder than they've been so far in saying, uh, yeah, we think the worst is over. And on the other hand, Jason, China, um, you know, all of the long haul expansion, uh, which which has all kinds of other implications, you know, airlines overflying hubs like uh, like Seoul, uh, like Tokyo and so forth. Um, you know, let's see if there's any evidence yet of uh, of airlines overreaching. I mean, when you see some of these route announcements, it, it certainly uh, looks like they are. Um, but the Chinese carriers themselves, at least the ones that report publicly, have, have held up rather well. So, um, you know, let, let's see if there's any um, any indication at some point of, of uh, some cracks in that or, or if they can uh, can keep up this this pace um, without any uh, big negative impacts on themselves uh, or on, on their foreign competitors. Okay, and with that, we'll leave it right there. This concludes episode 48 of the Airline Weekly Lounge. We'll see you back here next week. Until then, thanks for joining us. Bye.